The peak body for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander legal services is calling on governments to help prevent Indigenous deaths in custody as a result of COVID-19. Advocates are concerned an outbreak within the prison system could have a devastating impact on inmates, 28% of whom are Indigenous. Cheryl Axelby is co-chair of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Service, or NATSELS. Cheryl, thanks for your time. What impact would a COVID-19 outbreak in the prison system have? Well, many of our mob in the prison system have chronic health conditions and disability. So if they contract the virus from prison, we're concerned that their lives will be on the line and we're also concerned about the possibility of you know, having further black deaths in custody occurring as a result. How have authorities gone about mitigating those risks that you're identifying? Well, so far the government's response has been to lock down prisons, stopping visits and putting new prisoners into isolation. And, you know, we understand that some governments are probably doing more than others in looking at how they're providing, so rather than people having to purchase some, giving them increased phone calls because of, like, they're not being able to have visits. But that's not a standard that's actually happening across all prisons. And, you know, we're really concerned about the lack of contact with family for a lot of our mob in the prison system. So they're taking every measure to try and stop coronavirus happening within the prison system. But of course, you know, what our concern is, is our mob are the most highest at risk of contracting the virus. And with our high incarceration rates already in prisons, um, we're really concerned that should an outbreak occur, that you know, our mob will be severely impacted. Now, you've obviously called for a different strategy, which is the immediate release of low-risk First Nations inmates. Can you explain what that would mean and why you think that's a priority? Well, I suppose firstly, around the world, governments are recognising release of imprisoned peoples as a responsible thing to do to contain the spread. You know, from England, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, US, Canada... Indonesia and Germany, they've been taking measures in regards to, you know, doing things such as like releasing prisoners and they've set up like strategies about how they do that. What we're calling for is immediate release of our mob in prison who are most at risk with pre-existing health issues, including our elderly, our mob who have chronic health conditions, disability and mental health conditions. We are saying that, you know, they could be fast-tracking bail applications because a lot of our mob are actually in custody on remand rather than actually doing a sentence. And we're calling for those who are imprisoned for terms of six months or less to be considered for release. And as well as our mob who are eligible for early release and who have six months or less to serve, that they expedite parole processes. Because end of the day, what we're saying is that we're all better off when we're all healthy, and especially the most vulnerable in our mob, which is a lot of our mob in prison. It strikes me hearing you talk about those strategies, which sound like really mm. good common sense strategies for dealing with a health crisis, that mm. they would actually be good strategies for the system generally. Uh, absolutely. Right across the board, we think that this would be a strategy that all governments could implement right across all their prison systems. And, you know, just an example, like, you know, what's been actually happening in other countries that we're sort of aware about. You know, United Kingdom, they're releasing pregnant people in custody. You know, that's another thing that we should be looking at here in Australia. And they've also released around about 4,000 people in custody who had two months or less to still serve. Uh, Ireland has proposed to release prisoners with less than 12 months to serve. And over in Indonesia, I think they've released 22,000 inmates with a bid to reduce the risk of the transmission of it in the overcrowded detention facilities. 
So again, you know, there's really good world best practice happening globally. And we're just saying, well, you know, why would we consider that those strategies in Australia? You've also advocated for the decriminalisation of behaviour relating to COVID-19. Can you talk a little bit about the issues you're identifying there and why that's a priority? Well, as we have experienced, you know, when fines are allocated or introduced, uh, where police have the power to find that people, a lot of our mob are usually highly overrepresented in receiving fines. And this has been evident for years in many areas. And I can talk about different things, but you know, I can talk about Sajuna in South Australia, for instance, where they were introducing a lot of fines in regards to you know, dry um, areas. And a lot of our mob have been severely impacted by those fines. So what we're saying is we need to stop the flow in prisons and the police officers in particular and the courts can actually play a real key role in ensuring that they play their part to beat coronavirus and to stop the flow of our people going into prison. So some of the things that we're talking about is focus on giving our people more warnings and cautions for low-level offences instead of arresting them and to rely on the diversionary options that are already available to them have a moratorium on executing warrants for arrest for low-level offences for at least six months period and prioritise proceedings by way of summons and to list matters as late in the year as possible. So, you know, police must not use COVID-19 fines to over-police our communities is what really the key messaging is. And we're asking that they also work with local communities to develop alternatives and to focus on clear um, communication strategies to ensure everyone's safety. Again, this sounds like really good common sense approaches to dealing with these issues. What's been the response from the community, the police and the government to the advocacy you've been doing in these areas? Well, we know that community members are quite supportive. We've been working with families who have experienced black deaths in custody to help us put a position paper together on this issue. We've also written to every state and territory minister highlighting and again reiterating our calls that they introduce these measures within their institutions across Australia. Um, We've received a couple of responses, a couple that in a sense are perhaps not the best responses where they're deflecting you to different other ministers um, rather than actually seriously taking on the issue. Um, But we've had some good responses from New South Wales and ACT as to the measures that they're undertaking and that they're considering some of the measures that we put forward. We've seen an increase in surveillance and police powers and a restriction on freedoms of movement during this time of crisis. But going forward, do you have any concerns about these powers staying in place in the longer term? Well, I think all Australians are really concerned about the ongoing aspects of such powers. You know, these measures have been introduced for a period of time to deal with a very serious health issue. And I don't think any of us have any issue of these in this period of time. But we need to make sure that once COVID-19 matters have resolved, that things go back to normal and that our community members are able to freely go about their business like they had previously. Cheryl, this period has really highlighted across a lot of areas the importance of our community-controlled organisations. And just listening to you speak now on the issues that NATSELs have been identifying, the work that ALSs are doing around the country, I was wondering if you could share with us some of your observations about the evidence of why the ALSs are so important during a time like this and what things we should be doing to support them going forward. Well, I think it's really critical that our Aboriginal legal services have always played a key leadership role 
on a number of issues that impact across our communities. And I think it's because we are so widely spread within each of our states and territories and we are also very connected at a national level. So each Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Legal Service in each state and territory form the membership of the national body, the National Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Legal Services. And we come together and we identify the key issues in common so that we can actually have a collective response to try and make positive change for our mob in the justice system. And particularly, you know, when we're talking about this type of issue at the moment and having a voice, I suppose, for a lot of our community members who can't have their voices heard, and particularly for our mob in prison in the justice system. And I'm talking about our young fellows in the justice system as well, not just, you know, the adult prison system. And also, you know, our women, where we've seen such a dramatic increase of our women now being incarcerated more than ever before. It's important that our mob get behind our services and support us so that we can continue to take up those causes. I'm just glad that we're starting to see like a bit of a reduction in the curve and it shows that Australia has been taking some really good measures and just about how we support our communities. Because I think, you know, the most vulnerable are our mob living in, you know, real remote communities and the cost of living for a lot of our mob in those areas is actually having a big impact. Just finally tonight, you've obviously been incredibly active being an advocate and you know, really dealing with a lot of the coalface issues. And you've had to do this while, like the rest of us, you've had to be in social isolation. How have you adapted to the changes and what's that been like for you and your family? Well, I've got two lovely elderly parents, uh, mum and dad, and you know, dad's going to be 81 and mum's going to be 79 this year. So me and my two sisters and our children have been doing everything we can to ensure that mum and dad are staying safe because they're at high risk of contracting COVID-19. So, you know, we do everything that we can, just as all our community mob do, in looking after our orders. Also, I've got aunties that I, I make sure that, you know, do check in and make sure that they're okay and that their needs are okay. Working in isolation, we've reduced our attendance in some of our ALS's offices, but it doesn't mean the work has stopped. You know, we've got our lawyers who are still attending to the courts um, to provide representation for our mob and same with our Aboriginal field officers doing the after-hours response service for mobbing who are arrested. So, you know, it's business as usual. We're just working differently. We're maybe having a lot more contact with each other through um, utilising, you know, the Zoom and, you know, the audiovisual tools, which I think has been deadly. And, you know, we have a really good, strong leadership team at Legal Rights and SA, and we meet um, very regularly to ensure that we're on top of this and supporting our staff because working from home can also be detrimental for some followers, as we know in our communities as well. So, and particularly for our elders, you know, not getting out and about like they normally do, you know, that's what I think is impacting on my mum and dad, is being at home all the time can actually be quite depressing too. Cheryl, thank you so much for all your good work during this time and for sharing your insights into these issues with us on Speaking Out this evening. Thanks for having me. And um, everyone out there, keep safe and keep supporting your communities. Cheryl Axelby is co-chair of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Service.